Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national, and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. I'm Andy McClanahan, and in this episode, my guests and I are revisiting an incredibly important issue, the restraint and seclusion of children and young people in educational settings. In June 2021, an episode of the podcast examined work to deliver updated guidance on restraint and seclusion of children with additional needs in schools in Northern Ireland. Since then, much has happened, and the recent publication of the Department of Education's review of the use of restraint and seclusion in educational settings marks a significant step towards the delivery of this guidance. With me to discuss the department's review are Kulu Yasuma, the Northern Ireland Commissioner for Children and Young People, Deidre Shakespeare, a campaigner, family advocate and expert by experience, and Carolyn Ewart, Director of BASWA Northern Ireland. Kula, Deidre, Carolyn, Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. How are you all doing? Great. Thanks, Andy. Great. Thank you, Andy. Thanks for having us along. Yeah, it's great to be here and it's great to be in the room and to see everyone. It yeah. is. It is. This is episode 34. This is the first episode we've ever made in a room with other people, which is mega. Yeah. I'm really excited. I'm really looking it'll forward. Be, it'll be the best episode. Oh, I would. I have. Just I, have I, 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 I expect absolutely <laughs> nothing less. Genuinely, if uh, any listeners want to give any feedback, I'd be dead keen. Uh, email ltsw at basw.co.uk just in terms of how this format works. I, I would love to hear back. Um, but yes, it's great to be here. I don't have to ask you where you are because you are here. Thank you for joining us. So, as a quick recap, uh, before we get into our discussion, in the episode made in June 2021, we were joined by Chris Little. Chris was then an MLA and he was the chair of the Stormont Education Committee. And our discussion highlighted that there is political support for change, um, outlined by the Northern Ireland Assembly passing a motion which called for the Minister of Education to introduce updated statutory guidance, mandatory training for all staff working directly with children and young people, mandatory recording and reporting of all incidents of restrictive intervention and the abolition of the use of isolation rooms. Then in December, the Commissioner for Children and Young People published extensive research into the experiences of young people affected by restrictive interventions and later will examine how the recommendations outlined in the Department for Education's review stack up against those made in Kula's report. As things stand, however, although interim guidance on seclusion was published last year, and we'll hopefully discuss that a little later on, the existing guidance on the use of restraint is decades old and considers the matter from a disciplinary standpoint. There is no statutory obligation on schools to record incidents involving restraint or seclusion, and there is also no statutory requirement to inform parents when restraint or seclusion is used on their child. But before we discuss the recommendations that have been made by the Department of Education to rectify the situation, let's look at why the change is needed. Deidre, you've been campaigning relentlessly for a change in the law to prevent the mistreatment experienced by your son um, happening to any other child. Can you tell me a little bit about Harry and the abuse that he experienced when he was at school? Yeah, first of all, thank you, Andy, for inviting me along here today to join this important discussion along with Kula and Carolyn and yourself. So Harry was just five years old when he was subjected to restrictive practice known as restraint and seclusion. He had just turned six when we made the grim discovery that restraint was being used to control and contain Harry and his movements. 
Harry was subjected to restraint for the duration of his school year from September 2016 to June 2017 when he was just P and P1. Okay, thank you, Deidre. Um, and what was the educational setting that Harry was in? So Harry attended a specialist school um, and they cater for children who have disabilities such as autism, physical disabilities or learning disabilities. And we believe that a specialist placement was the most appropriate place to ensure that Harry would thrive in a school designed and resourced specifically to meet the needs of children with high support needs who require specialist teaching. So he was somewhere that he should have been looked after. He was somewhere that he should yeah. be supported and, and educated and yeah. being able to develop. Um what was the nature of the restrictive practices that were being used and um, that Harry was being subjected to? So we discovered that mechanical and physical restraint were used in Harry. Um, he was also segregated from his peers and we believe seclusion was known as a dark room were also applied as methods to control Harry. Um, mechanical restraint took place in the form of specialist chairs um, and they also used reins to harness Harry so his movement was controlled at all times. Harry also came home with fingertip bruising, which we believe was attributed to physical restraint. Um, he was also often forced to comply using physical restraint to take place or to take part, sorry, in class activities while he was mechanically restrained. And Harry often showed dis- distress in the in the pictures that were sent home, but they didn't stop. They also used straps to tie Harry's feet to a chair while they were restraining him. They also use a lap belts and tables. These are all methods of mechanical restraint. There was no dignified treatment for Harry um, and the school's child's rights ethos did not apply to him. And how did you find out, Didri, that this was happening? It's so distressing. Thank you for sharing. But how, really how did you shocking. find out? It's really shocking to hear the, those experiences, Didri. Yeah. yeah. And to just take and stop and take a minute. This was a six-year-old child. He, he was five at the it's time. Five. Yeah, but he just turned six then when we received. The, yeah. the books so it was like a jigsaw coming yeah. together all the pieces just started to slot they all in started to make sense yeah though. they all started to make sense so as i say we received um playbooks at the end of the year and these were filled with photographs of harry restrained in a chair and often he was in distress um the pictures also showed physical restraint and it was just really tragic what harry endured um Incidentally, Harry's social worker raised the alarm with us around the time that we received the playbooks. Um, and up until this point, we had absolutely no idea what mechanical restraint was um, until he explained what mechanical restraint was. So would there have been any circumstances at all where, where Harry would have been restrained that, that you would have known about or approved of? Um, well, we, we, uh, we did um, agree that a chair could be used at feeding times as it was at home. So that was the only agreement that we that we said that could, they could be used, could, could be, be used, used at yeah. times. Yes, used, yeah. yes, not all day. No, um, and you were finding out that this was happening throughout school, throughout the school day. Yeah, the photographs seem to, you know, give that impression that it was throughout this whole school day because it was for class activities um, and um, water play, you know, the painting, you know, just everything in general. He was just seemed to be mechanically restrained. Yes, yes and he was that- very unhappy. Harry has no physical disability, is that No, correct? he's completely immobile child. He is yes, immobile child. Yes, yes. Now, you said that in the photos you saw that Harry was distressed. Yeah. Um, would Harry exhibit distressed behaviour throughout the day? Is that is that an unusual occurrence? Not not really, to be honest. Harry is a very placid um, little boy. Okay. Um, he's, you know, he's, he's uh, very manageable and... 
you're, you could very easily um, redirect if he becomes anxious or upset. So um, he's, he's a very happy go lucky wee boy, you know. Yes, yes. So he was distressed, obviously, when he was being subjected to this um, this restraint. Um, what impact was it having on Harry outside of school? Well, the hem- impact that it had was it is significant, and it's still ongoing trauma. Um, Harry experienced night terrors, panic attacks, and he would also cower in fear when he was approached. Um, he would defecate in fear, and he had terrible anxiety when we would leave her home. Um, Harry would scream on car journeys, um, but it would subside a little when we would pass the roundabout, which led to the school. So he would also pace backwards and forth on the sofa and he would bang his head in a rocking motion. He was just completely institutionalized. And, and on other occasions, Harry would silently cry as well. We tears would trickle down his face. Um, so I can only imagine the emotional and the psychological pain were unbearable for him, but we just didn't understand why. I'm, I'm just thinking of other situations, say strapping Harry into the car, you know, where there needs to be a seatbelt. Yeah. W- would that have triggered his um, his distress? It did at the time. He was, yeah, yeah that's where he became very anxious, um, defecated in fear on every car journey. Um, and, I, and I had to sit beside him in the back. So he needed me with him at all times. He needed that reassurance because he was just so stressed and so anxious. It was really a terrible time. And that doesn't it just really impact was. Harry, that, that impacts you, that impacts your, yeah. your husband and your, your daughter yeah, as well? Yeah, we, we felt guilty because we didn't understand what was happening and, you know, why we couldn't leave her home. So, um, yeah, so I it, it has affected our family um, because of the actions of others, obviously. The anxiety and stress are ongoing as a result of the, the restraint that Harry endured, but we also faced humiliation, bullying, intimidation, and cyberbullying in the past. And that was a direct result of because we were protecting our son. We're going to talk about Clue's research um, shortly, but one of the things that stood out to me when I read that research was parents saying that they felt kind of disempowered, that you know they were talking to people that were deemed experts who surely should have known better. Um, did you ever feel that you were kind of being gas- gaslighted? All the time, yeah. Yeah. I was actually told to... Um, consider cognitive behavior therapy myself. So, um, yeah, it was uh, quite um, a difficult time for us, you know, just the whole situation. Um, and you lived in fear, yeah. you know, because we have this, I don't know, I think we seem to have this culture where people are afraid to speak up, people are afraid to talk, and victims are silenced. Yes. And that's exactly what happened, Harry. And then we, because we were speaking out, we were people tried to silence us as well. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't manage to. No, did we? <laughs> to be honest, they didn't. Thankfully, they didn't. No. Who believed you, Deidre? Did anyone believe you? Uh, no. Um, it was like our whole community really turned against us. Um, and Chris actually um, was one of the first people who listened. Well, Adele Boyd, as you yes, know, a social uh, worker, yes, independent yes. social worker. Actually, she was the first. Um, and then, um, Chris, well, actually Kula too, I can't, I, I can't, Kula sit here too, Kula yeah. as well, because I had engaged with Kula's office as well. So there was a lot of engagement there. Um, so it just seemed that like everybody came together. So the more support that we had, 
you know, it gives us more recognition then that this is happening. Um, and then we were believed because that's what we want to, you know, everybody mm-hmm. wants to be believed. You yeah. want your story to be believed. Where is Harry now? He's moved school. Yeah, Harry's in another school now. Um, he's happy and he's thriving. He's no longer restrained and he's educated in a regular classroom chair like his peers. He also receives full-time um, adult assistance um, to support his needs. Harry's experience, though, has led us to campaign for Harry's Law alongside co-founder um, Har- Adele Boyd, who's an independent social worker, as I said. So we, we've been campaigning away for Harry's Law for... Uh, better regulation and um you know i think that's where kula comes in here <laughs> yes thank you so much Didri. thank you so much for sharing i know this is this is you shared this before but it is so sensitive and it is um it must be so difficult so thank you for being honest and thank you for being open thank it's, you very much for having me you're, I'm still here <laughs> you're still here you're still here, <laughs> you're still here. Away. <laughs> yes you're not you're not leaving um Thank you. Kula, uh, Deidre has outlined really, really clearly the harm that was caused to Harry as a result of the restrictive practices um, that he was subjected to, but his is not an isolated case. In December 2021, you published the report Neither Seen Nor Heard, and I'm going to include a link to that in the show notes so listeners can find it. It's a rights-based review on the use of restraint and seclusion in educational settings. Now, it's a long review. Um, There's a lot in it. In a nutshell, what did the research uncover? Um, it is a long review and I make no apologies about that because we were trying to stay true to um, the, the stories and the experiences of parents like Deirdre, but also of educators and what was going on in schools. But I think it's taking the next, what happened next from what you've just heard from, from Deirdre, because you're apps. I mean, Deirdre did come to our office and she, and she knocked all the doors um, um, that, that could have assisted and what became apparent quite quickly is in theory the school did nothing wrong because they didn't have to inform parents. They didn't have to have guidance. They didn't have to have training. So what, I mean, the extent to what they did, and whilst you you would read Harry's story, and and I would talk to colleagues who were engaging with, with Deirdre and the family, and, but you couldn't hold them to account. You couldn't um, get the justice, all the guarantees that there would be no more Harrys. And, and we kept seeing that, not on a daily basis, but certainly frequently we kept seeing parents saying, my child is, is, is being told he, he can only play in this bit of the playground. My child is being dragged into a room, literally kicking and screaming. My child is being restrained for no reason other than discipline. And, and then you see the photographs uh, um, that, that Deirdre has, has already shared in social media. And that was, that if you like, is the background because I think it's really important that not only did Deirdre and other families um, uh, like theirs need to be believed and they were very quickly, uh, but they also needed to be sure that it was never going to happen again. And that's been the journey since um, whilst... It's, it's it's essential that Harry's trauma is addressed and the family trauma. So I suppose that's really, the word trauma is is the best way to, to look at what came out of neither seen nor heard. The trauma of, of the children who've experienced restraint and seclusion, but also the trauma of the families. I know as a parent, if, if this was happening to my child and I didn't know it was happening to my child, and the fact that I wasn't able to protect them and stop it happening to my child, 
would would devastate me. It it's my you ask me who I am, and I will say to you, I'm Kuliusum, and the first thing I am is a, is the parent of two girls who are now adults. But that is my identity. Everything else is peripheral to being a mother. Um, and I think if anything happened that I couldn't have, and that's what came through again and again and again through neither seen nor heard was that trauma from the parents, but also which I did find surprising is also some of the trauma from the educators mm -hmm. who were saying we are not sufficiently supported in addressing this issue. And then we find ourselves into bad practice. And when no one's trained us, no one's given us support, no one's given us guidance. So those two things we we had to balance and we had to marry. And, and I'm sorry, I've, I've gone very long-winded in, 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 in our answer, but the recommendations were almost written before we started the review. Uh, because we knew what needed to be done. The review was to provide the evidence. And and it, it is a huge debt that Nikki and, and our team have to the, the, the parents who were involved with the review and the educators who were involved with the review who helped us craft those recommendations. And it gives a voice. Throughout the report, there are... Um uh, accounts given by the parents yeah. and the children as well yeah. uh, and that's what's so harrowing when you read those accounts and you understand the impact it's had and the trauma uh. you said another thing which really stood out to me was and it's very much the same as in Deidre's case the isolation of the children you know often kids are non-verbal can't actually explain what they're going through and that's you know from a, I am a parent as well the thought of that happening to one of my kids is just it's 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 unbearable yeah, yeah. And and again, um, you'll see it from Harry. You'll see it from from the other children. That what then happened is they they got identified in school by their behaviour, not by who they were, yeah. not yeah. by the fantastic fabulousness of 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 that little boy or or of the other children. It was their behaviour, their bad behaviour. So again, the language we use when when we're describing both the techniques and the methods that are being used but also how children manifest distress um, is really important because a lot of the parents said they didn't see my child. They stopped seeing him. They stopped seeing her. They only saw that behavior. And, when, and then you were in a vicious cycle. You were in a vicious cycle because they, tr they responded to the behavior which distressed the child even more. And then their distressed behaviors continued and then they responded to the behavior. And they never saw the glory that, that, that was those children. And that's a useful point to move on to the department's review yeah. because it's uh, it's essentially looking to correct that um, um, that error of labelling children by their behaviour or approaching this as a disciplinary mm. um, sort of issue. So mm. um, the first of the recommendations made in the department's review states that the department should, at the earliest legislative opportunity, repeal Article 4.1c of the Education Northern Ireland Order 1998, which enables the use of reasonable force for the purpose of preventing a pupil from, I'm going to quote directly from it, engaging in any behaviour prejudicial to the maintenance of good order and discipline. Kula, how significant do you consider this step to be in correcting the misunderstanding that children's distressed behaviour is bad or naughty and one which justifies a disciplinary response? Incredibly significant because corporal punishment was outlawed in Northern Ireland schools, has been outlawed for years in Northern Ireland schools. We do not have corporal punishment in, and, and we should be rightly proud of that, but keep it. An eye. And yet here we have tucked away in a piece of legislation um, around restraint and seclusion that says actually we can put hands on a child for for good order and discipline and that um and and again it was the parents who highlighted that that there's a back door and the use of restraint and seclusion can be used uh, when a child 
is naughty for want of a better word. But in no other circumstance will we would we allow a government agency, a statutory body, to do that to a child. We don't allow it in health. We don't allow it in in children's social care and social work. Yet here we here we had this we we clause that gave them the cover. Mm-hmm. It gave it gave them the cover, and that's why um, it it was a key recommendation in neither seen nor heard. And I'm I I was because I I wasn't sure they were going to go for the department were going to go for it. Um, but I think the stories, uh, Deirdre's story and the stories in and in neither seen nor heard and what the department did in their own review for them made it made it non-contestable that that had to be repealed. So that is incredibly important because it it closes the back door that, that we had to corporal punishment in our schools. Thanks, Kula. Thanks for clarifying that. Now, that's the first of several recommendations. And the second recommendation is for the Department of Education to issue statutory guidance on the use of restrictive and support practices for educational settings in the next school year. So that's 2022-23. What I want to know, because I don't actually know the answer to this, is what is statutory guidance? What And does it require legislation to be passed to bring it into effect? Now you're sitting comfortably, all of us, <laughs> because this is quite a long old tale. No, it's not. So, uh, and 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 thank you for asking the question, Andy, because I have been. Nikki has been banging on about statutory guidance on a number of issues, um, but no, it, it's only when I saw this question I thought, actually, how do they how do they go about and doing it? Yeah. So they've made it very clear. They've identified the 2003 um, Education and, and Libraries and Northern Ireland Order, which is talks about safeguarding and child protection that order allows for uh, for regulations to be made mainly by negative resolution now um social policy stay with us everybody yeah, stay, yeah, with stay, us. Stay, yeah. stay, stay with me it'll be fine so basically <laughs> that what the minister will do is issue guidance that the minister let's assume it's it's michelle McElvin and, we'll, and we'll talk about she she will then issue statutory guidance that says schools must boards of governors must um, and uh, education authority must. Um, and then she will lay that at the assembly. And then there's a set period of time by which MLAs um, can object to it. The term's pray against, isn't it? Oh, well, they'll, they'll have to pray. If they, <laughs> if they go against it, if it's good and they go against it, there'll be a lot of praying involved, let me tell you. So, yes, yeah, so they have to do this thing, pray against. Don't you just love parliamentary language? Now, somebody yes. in the assembly sitting there going, the commission's got it all wrong. Please use um, the Basra hashtag to tell Basra they got it wrong. Um, but, no, I think that's what happens. So we will need... Preempting your next question, we will need an executive, we will need a minister, and we will need an assembly for us to get the statutory guidance that we so desperately need, um, and also to repeal the law or, um, as well. So this cannot be done without those things in place. But it doesn't need an awful lot of time in terms of the no. legislative agenda. It can be done quickly. It, it can be done quickly, except as as you all know, this is going to have to be heavily consulted on. Yeah. The devil is going to be in the detail. They've they have said the right things. Yeah. We are on that road, but to get to journey's end, we are going to have to scrutinise every must, should, mm-hmm. mays, and shalls in the in the guidance. We're going to have to be very clear. If you look at what Deirdre's been saying about Harry's law, if you look at the recommendations in neither seen nor heard, if you look at some of the guidance that the Public Service Ombudsman has published, we need to be clear that that they are tightly contained in this statutory guidance. There's a lot of work ahead of us for all of us in this in this uh, game to make sure that it's right. So it's not going to be a 
it's uh, and I say this to the parents, it's not going to be quick because we have to get it right. Yes, yes. And it's been a long time coming. Um, the department's review explains the statutory guidance will be issued under Article 18.1c of the Education and Libraries Northern Ireland Order 2003, which relates to the welfare and protection of pupils and places a statutory duty on the Board of Governors to have regard to the guidance in relation to measures taken to protect pupils from abuse. So, Kula, the question then is, does this by implication mean that any misuse of restrictive practices once the statutory guidance is in place, will it be considered by the department as abuse? Potentially, you can't listen to Harry's story. You can't read the testimonies in Neither Seen Nor Heard by by not thinking that a child was worse off, that a child suffered trauma, and that fits into the category of abuse. So it's right that there is some investigation that where restraint, I will not talk about seclusion because it should never be used, but where restraint is used inappropriately, what that, that there is a potential to have harmed the child uh, to, to a certain degree. So it's right that they do put this within a safeguarding context. Okay, okay, that's helpful to know. Um, yeah, and so just to touch on seclusion, Harry was subject to seclusion yeah, as we well. Yeah, we believe that he was. There was um, what was known as a dark room, which was in his classroom. And um, we kind of link that up with his newfound fear of the dark mm-hmm. um even yet to this day you know harry will waken every night in a panic and he comes looking for me mm-hmm. in, a, in a state um so i still feel like it has had a real significant impact on him and because obviously harry's non nonverbal, so he can't tell us anything mm. that happened to him but we have pictures to build you know, photographs sent home, which have built a picture as to how his school day was for him. Mm-hmm. And we, even with its seclusion, the the report yeah. turned up issues of imp- inappropriate use of like sensory uh, rooms. And, and this is this is what, what what I was referring to, and I was talking about getting the guidance right. The department have have said we're going to look at definitions of seclusion, and of course there are timeout rooms. And, and there are sensory rooms that are part of a child's um, plan and a statement of special educational needs. And when that, that, that's not seclusion. They're therapeutic interventions that parents sign up to and agree to and understand what the purpose of those are. So this is, this is a, the, the use of seclusion. Uh, the department have said we're going to, we're going to ban them. But it's talked to, it's talked a bit about the definition. So there's going to be a lot of work ahead of us all around getting that definition of seclusion right. So a child should never be secluded. Certainly not in a dark room. Certainly not in a cupboard with with the, with a teacher standing outside or a member of staff standing outside saying you can't get out. Um, and certainly not as a result of bad behaviour. Um, and we use the words and if it ever. Seclusion and isolation should never be happening in an education setting. And and, that, and that's the, the detail we'll be thrashing out with the department uh, moving forward. You don't want to end up in a situation though where you can't have provision for children to take themselves voluntarily. I think in our Basel's position... No, no, no. That's an entirely different situation. That's it, absolutely. Think, that we, we, chill, and, 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 and we have that. We hear it all the time. Particularly... And my, my daughter's training to be a teacher and she does talk about 
children being allowed to, to move out. But um, And that's part of the plan for the child. That's the agreed part of the plan. The room isn't a cold, dark room with the teacher standing outside and preventing you from leaving. It's part of the child's therapeutic plan. That's not what we're talking about. And that's what's going to have to be thrashed out going forward. And also that plans are developed for individual children. Always. So that we don't have, you know, the situation for Harry will be different to the situation for essentially every other child in this class. You know, it has to be person-centred. Yeah, I was just going to say in Harry's class, um, there is a room where they can go to. There's no door. I've seen it. Um, and there is a few wee sensory lights and bean bags. So yeah. if the children are feeling a bit distressed or they don't want to participate yeah. in what is happening in the class, they can take themselves to that room yeah. um, and they can go and have their own time out. And no, you know, that's that's yeah. perfectly reasonable. Absolutely. And that is what all children yeah. should be yeah. have access to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And importantly, they can leave whenever they want. They're exactly. free to leave. Yeah. yeah. And they're not dragged kicking and screaming yes, into absolutely. it as we've heard with because, some children. Because we, we, we say about seclusion, but we forget that Children are, as you just said there, they are restrained mm. to take them to, to get them into the yeah. room. seclusion. So yeah. they're they're both being secluded and physically yeah, restrained, restrained at the same time. So there's a lot of trauma going on there just oh, to get them into amount. a room. Huge amount. Yeah. Now the definitions, they come in in recommendation three. It's the big recommendation. It's quite literally the big recommendation. It has three M's in it. Um, <laughs> I don't know if by the time this goes out on air, if uh, the typo will have been corrected when I downloaded it, it had three M's. Um, right, so recommendation three requires several changes and we're going to break them down. Firstly, it requires that the statutory guidance provides clear definitions of restrictive practices and supportive practices, and that's what we've just mentioned. Later, it also states the guidance should include exemplars of positive, preventative and early intervention practices identified by the Education and Training Inspectorate. Kula, did your report highlight disparities between schools in terms of awareness of the types of therapeutic practices that should be used to meet the needs of children when they're expressing distressed behaviour? Uh, and on the on the education side, that was the most um, st- one of the most stark findings on the on the on the professional on the educational side. The differences from schools to schools, the differences between um, mainstream schools and special schools, the differences um, between the, the levels of training and awareness. Teachers uh, and staff talking about I'm the person who's trained, and therefore I'm then seen as the, some sort of enforcer, which is a horrible. You don't go to. You don't become a teacher to do that sort of stuff. But also, that they fear then legal repercussions if it goes wrong. Uh, well, and there's there's a lot of that. There's a lot of who's uh, supporting the trauma uh, of, and that is an absolute responsibility of of the school and and the education authority. We then saw a huge disparity in the numbers of schools who had policies on restraint or policies on seclusion. So, you know, only uh, 10% had uh, a policy that focused on seclusion and only 40% had, uh, sorry, 50, 51%, just over half had a policy that focused on restraint. So a lot of schools were, were working in the dark. We don't actually know how often this stuff happens because it's not properly recorded, although there is a number bandying about, but we need to work out where where it's come from. So, um it was quite surprising and shocking that there wasn't a policy. But again, because they didn't have to have one, it's all advisory. We couldn't hold them to account. We couldn't hold the Board of Governors to account. And similarly, our colleagues in NIPSO, where a lot of these complaints have ended up, have said there has to be a change because if you haven't got, if you're not breaching a rule, then you can't be held to account for yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. And, and schools are just currently 
free to make up their own policy. Is that is that essentially where we're at? In theory, yeah. And they're not being given uh, template policies or or actually they're not in quite a lot of things. But so, yes, they are. The schools and, and this came out in Neither Seen Nor Heard. Schools sometimes felt they've been left alone um, to to devise policies, to access training, although some of it is available um, through the education, uh, education Library Board. How old am I? The Education Authority. <laughs> um, but yes, so schools were uh, and, and you you got that. You got a sense of that from from our report that schools did feel um, abandoned a little bit by the system when I coming up that, with policies. I, mean, I find that quite shocking, actually, um, in terms of being involved in the process and mm. involved in the department's group and, and yeah. the group that um, oversaw y- your report. I mean, it, it did seem that the the board of governors have enormous responsibilities um, and and little understanding. Absolutely. I think in some cases, no of knowledge the that this was going on. Have. That's right. In their school, in their name. So the chances are, yeah. the board of governors in Harris School would not have known yeah. that there was a little boy, or, and goodness knows how many others, who were virtually permanently strapped to a chair during the school day. They didn't actually understand what mechanical restraint no, was no. whenever we met them, the yeah. board of governors. Yeah. Um. So we found that quite shocking. Yeah. That yeah. They didn't know. They challenged us on it. And is this is this inertia? It, could it be described as a failure of leadership, or is it essentially no? no? I I I because I, I don't think board of governors they are volunteers. Yeah. They're not even paid. There's ten thousand of them across Northern Ireland. They're not even paid. They do what they have to yes. do. And 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 as a, as a past member of a board of governors, it's quite a big job because you're running multi million pound operations sometimes. So this was not on the list of the must dos. They do the must-dos, the child protection, the health and safety. This was not on the list of the must-dos. So they, it wasn't that they were, they didn't know yes. that they had to care, you know. And Take it up a level though, Killa, take it up a level to uh, the Education Authority, the Department for Education, the Minister for Education. Was it a lack of leadership? I, I, a lack of recognition that there was an issue that they needed to address. So I'm, I am absolutely, I was pleased by what came out of the department's review, I'm I, I I do support the findings. I'm looking forward to implementing them, but I absolutely think when we're talking about the system EA and DE, their inability to see that there was a problem, the fact that they had to be brought kicking and screaming to a certain extent to this table to come, although they've got there, it shouldn't have taken this long. It should never. Have, 1999, this guidance was issued. It should not have taken over 20 years for the for these children and, and, and these parents to be believed that there was a problem with the system and that it was not isolated to uh, the old school here and there. Yes. I mean, there, there have been many um, organisations involved in the campaign, but I've never seen a campaign driven by parents as much as this campaign did. So, you know, credit to you. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, well, it's our kids that, um, that drive us on because as Kula mentioned earlier, you know, it's a... Um, worst feeling in the world when something's happened to your child and you can't protect them you feel like a failure even though you're not responsible for it you still feel like you have failed them in some sense because you have you know taken them to that school um and it's been repeated and you haven't known so yeah it's I think it's really important as one of the groups that was being lobbied by the parents, our review took longer than it should have. It was in our business plan for for a few years and it took longer than it should have. Also because we couldn't provide the justice that the families needed because of the way the system was. It was an uncomfortable 
being being Nikki and being the commissioner, um, um, having those parents saying you're you, not you're useless. What are you doing about it? Why why have you not in, in, introduced the um, started your review and all, all, all those things? And whilst I, I I think we have very good reasons why we didn't, it wasn't comfortable. It's it wasn't comfortable for us. But they should never apologise for that because it was right that they kept on having um, a, a go. Sometimes and sometimes it was it was very amicable. Sometimes it was it was um, not so amicable. But that's okay. That's okay because we weren't working as quickly. They needed it to be done yesterday. They didn't need me to come up with all my excuses. Very good excuses. I, I hasten to add. But they didn't need me to come up with. They needed it to be done because their children had been traumatized. So I think it's it, you know, uh, like I said, it was it's one of the campaigns that, that I've been on the sticky end of, of you know where I was being lobbied and it wasn't comfortable. And when it comes from parents, but those parents, I you know that you're you're right, Andy. There hasn't been a group of parents who fought so hard and who have been so articulate in, in that fight but the joy of social media this is the great thing about social media it's given it's, it's enabled parents to find their voice and not to be mediated by by anybody else and that's been fabulous not always been comfortable for those of us on this end of it but I, absolutely right if i was them i wouldn't have done it any differently i probably wouldn't have been as polite either with great power comes great responsibility killer jesus i have neither <laughs> <laughs> And I have to say, I mean, you, you find, I mean, I find it incredible, but it, it kind of, it, it links to that point, Kula, that it was through social media. I mean, you found Adele Boyd, who actually yeah. was a member of ours and was on committee um, at that stage. And you find her quite by chance through your research in terms of social media, was, in terms of the report yeah. she'd done. It was three steps to positive three practice. Steps to positive That's practice. how I actually found her. Um, so um, I don't think I'll ever forget that phone call. Um it was just pure chance that she rang me back and um i mean we've we've formed a, a great relationship yeah. now um so um something good has come out yeah. of something so negative yeah so um i have to thank her for that um because all we needed we just needed doors to keep mm. swinging open yeah. you know um and and that's what parents need we need we need that engagement with organizations we need people you need to bring people along with you you need them to make this right for our kids yeah. just so that all our children aren't going to be affected the same way as our children are you don't ever want to imagine another child going through what your child has gone through it's and in terms of bringing people along when that motion was before the assembly back last year i mean it was unanimously supported i think there was yes. one voice of dissent but they didn't vote um so you know people were brought along on mass yeah. at that political level which is a testament to the to the work um I want to talk about training, though. I want to talk about what teachers and, and, and support staff need in schools. So the recommendation three would also require that the guidance includes details of training and resources to be made available for educational settings from the Education Authority. Um, now, this is going to be critical, and it's an issue that Basel raised when we briefed the Education Committee on this issue back, Carolyn, was it December 2020? It was December 2020, Long yeah. Yes, Long time ago. Yes, Lots of technical problems. I got this. I got to say on Hansard that Carolyn sounded like she's off something, something off Doctor Who. Yes, that's there forever yeah. on public records. <laughs> forever. Yeah, it went terribly wrong. Uh, thankfully, you were able to step in, Andy, and you were. I mean, I have to say, greatly invested, and you, you knew all the ins and outs of it, so you carried on without me, which was great. It, it was one of those experiences that it was enjoyable in hindsight. Let's just put it like that. Yes. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, but at that, when we when we briefed committee, we were highlighting that it's so vital that funding's, funding is made available to ensure that teachers and support staff are fully trained in the use of therapeutic approaches, is what we were advocating. Now, 
the question I have here is the department has made its recommendations, but should it have gone further at this stage and actually pledged funds to support training? Because this is going to be absolutely critical. Well, I mean, I, I think absolutely, Andy, they, they should have pledged funding because we know that we are in a really, you know, tight place with funding. There's demands on everyone's um, pockets. Um, and I, I think without funding and without a pledge to actually fund the, tr the training that is needed, I, I really, you know, I'm not sure that it will happen if people have to find it in existing budgets. I think that's going to be very tough to do. Yeah. I, th I think um, the training and ma making it mandatory is also another area yeah. that they're a little bit vague on in, in, in the recommendations that we're, we're going to have to tease up. I think whatever way this goes, the introduction of statutory ma and more mandatory guidance mm -hmm. will require training or require training of boards of governors. We see it with child yeah. protection. You know, if you become a board of governor, you need to do the child protection training. Yeah. So um, this will be the same. So there will be, there, there has to be, there's no way they can do this without additional resources the extent of those is going to be the question but also what what they do around mandatory training and and how far where, you know whether it goes into initial treaty training and then post-qualifying training and we would argue it would need to do both um uh, but yes there's no way there's no, no way they can no implement way. their recommendations without additional resources there's just no way it wouldn't it won't work the issue about mandatory recording and reporting, we've talked about this before earlier on. Um, so the recommendation is that there should be mandatory recording and reporting of all incidents of physical restraint and a requirement for educational settings to immediately inform parents and carers of any incident followed up with a formal report. Now, we talked earlier about the isolation of some of the children involved, particularly children that are nonverbal. Has enough thought been given to how those, um, those procedures will be overseen, Kula, to make sure that schools actually comply? It's, it's um, uh, clearly not because we're at the beginning of, of this uh, of this journey, and the the issue is how this is going to be implemented. Mandatory um, reporting, recording, and and reporting uh, to the boards of governors, and then in turn to ETI th through their inspection and and informing parents as soon as possible that this has happened to their child is essential. Now, how that's going to work, it, we do depend on oversight, but we will also be relying on um, staff in the, in the classroom to be able to say that wasn't recorded properly. So we need to give support to our, our, our classroom assistants, to our teachers and to anyone else who's in, who's in the classroom to, to, to be able to be comfortable to report when it's not being reported properly. We won't know. Uh, but as, as, so that's why the guidance needs to be as tight and as clear as possible. I, I think the the example I would come on to is in relation to last resort scenarios in the use of, for the use of restrictive practices. This is something that's going to need to be nailed down. Basel, in our um, policy statement on this, I think the term is we used there should be an illustrative, non-exhaustive list of examples of what constitutes a last resort scenario. Because what seems to be a last resort scenario for someone may be, you know, well. But that's and 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 I think that this term last resort is really difficult, um, and we see it in so much legislation, um, and and it, it, it I've seen it mean nothing, absolutely nothing, um, and again as an excuse to do nothing. The, so this is where you're right. There should be a list, but the, also where the board of governors should be interrogating, but also in inspection. This is you know. Uh, there is never an inspection of a school that doesn't look at the child protection procedures. Mm -hmm. Whether you're going in doing maths and whatever, you always look at the child protection procedures and we, we, we would expect this to be done the same and that they would be interrogating. How do you, did you evidence last resort? How did you, you know, what, what show us, show us what you did 
um, including engaging with parents around what works for your child at home and all the rest of it. Show us the evidence. Don't just say we did it because it was a last resort. You need to in in that form that they'll be filling in. There needs to be clear evidence that they try that they exhausted every other avenue. Yeah, and they talk about when all other de-escalation methods have been exhausted, but it's about training staff in to know what de-escalation. they are. Yes, yes, as opposed to you know some very narrow examples. Yeah, Deidre, I mentioned earlier on in the conversation that the approach for each child needs to be person-centered it needs to be designed tailored for that child how can the department and individual schools engage with parents like yourself um, to ensure this approach is successfully achieved how can they actually meaningfully co-produce the approach that they take forward my take on this is uh, a last resort should be regarded as a safeguarding assessment uh, for each individual child and not an overarching response to a child's behavior um, the staff should respond appropriately when a child is, a, is at significant risk to themselves or others, meaning a life or death situation or life or, or limb. So we know that the current situation is used to maintain good order and discipline as per the Article 4.1c. But a last resort is not about discipline, it's not about furniture, and it's not about behaviour. Each child should be supported with an, a personal learning plan and a communication passport. Um, and that maybe would include a child's specific likes, dislikes, what suits a child, respecting personal space, giving time to process, maybe schedules, visual aids or objects, but that's not an, ex an exhaustive list. Um, I feel like we need to create a better parental engagement to ensure coordination between home and school are effective um, in order to prevent crisis situations before the need for de-escalation. De um, and that's based on an assessment of every child's individual needs and not a one-size-fits-all approach. Schools also have to have an effective and balanced support for children in their care because, as Kula, say, Kula said, we can't expect crisis prevention to work if schools are not appropriately resourced. Carolyn, um, something directly for you in relation to social work. Basel has highlighted uh, scope for greater collaboration between social workers in the Education Authority and social workers in health and social care trust children's services teams in the investigation of safeguarding concerns. And this ties into the recommendation that the guidance should outline the complaints process and links to the department's safeguarding and child protection guidance. How do you bring about that closer working relationship between social workers in the Education Authority, often who are not recognised, I think, beyond that that that, um, that that sector and social workers working in child protection uh, in uh, the HSC trusts? A good question, Andy, indeed. And I, and I just I, about got it out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think there's, there's evidence, actually, of uh, lots of evidence that there are good relationships between um, social workers um, in um, the health and social care trusts and uh, teams in education. But I have to say that I think, Deidre, your experience um, of that was not that there was a good relationship between um, child protection procedures and investigations. So we know we have lots to learn and we have we've lots to change um, because we know that lots of parents have had negative experiences. Um, I mean, I, I think actually, Kula, going back to what you were saying, I mean, I think a, a lot of it will have to be written up in guidance. Mm. So there'll need to mm. be some structural mm. stuff that sets out how things, how teachers need to communicate more with um, with child protection teams. But I do think that honestly, a, a lot of it will come down to just building relationships. Um, now that that can be difficult to do, but actually, whether it's the team leader um, in the team that's going to investigate and the gateway team um, linking in with the headmaster or the headmistress of a school and forming relationships so that people understand more 
um, about their different responsibilities and their different roles. Um, but I do think that the the guidance is going to need to set out much in line with the child protection procedures that we That's have. Right. You know, there, there's quite clear rules and responsibilities there. But also, and, and you're right, and, it, and it's one of the um, requirements of Harry's law is that relationship between yeah. the education social worker, because that's what they are, and, and the trust social worker. Because, sure, I mean, those people are qualified social workers. Um, so am I, but please don't make me do this. But <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? But that relationship could be more more than just referring you know that education refers to you know that, that they you, you can see some sort of joint protocol going on here okay. where uh, you know they could do the, the work in partnership and because they are both social work qualified they've both got the skills and 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 the expertise to do that you know EWS may need training education welfare service social workers may need training but that's okay so I I think I think we can tease this out a little bit more make it really effective and not just say statute you know uh, trust social workers have to, have to do this this is a statute charge protection obviously if it triggers a th certain threshold but a lot of this can be done if there's a if there's a good relationship between the two the parity of esteem and and a good protocol and i think i mean that there are there are i think aspirations to kind of um that the role of the education welfare yeah, officer yeah. will will evolve and will change yeah. and i think this that that would be this a very a great example thing. of where it absolutely. could happen absolutely and as you say Kula, they are they're social workers absolutely they're trained they're registered you know yeah. uh, they have loads of expertise yeah. that they could bring into absolutely. play rather than that kind of limited role yeah, that they have yeah. at this stage i agree i find that um whenever we went through this whole process that we went to the um the health social yes, workers yes. first so that's where it went through the gateway team yeah um and then it was almost like a game of ping pong yeah. if you like because um the health trust social workers yeah. um were saying that it's the job of the ea social okay. workers and then they were saying no 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 it needs to go it's back to the trust to and the it trust. leaves you all the time and wondering then, where yeah, it falls. So there was like this, it seemed to be like a gap, you know, we, we just fell into like a black hole where nobody safeguarded, there was no safeguarding, so nobody actually took responsibility on taking a safeguarding matter forward. So it's almost like there was a two-tier system um, where you have, um, if, you, if a school makes a complaint um, about par parents, well, then that's acted on. But then whenever a parent makes a complaint about professional body, yeah. it just seems to, yeah. there's a void there. And we would say categorically that in, in those circumstances that, you know, the Health and Social Care Trust needs to investigate and yes. needs to investigate the matter as a, as a child protection issue. Absolutely. Yeah. And you shouldn't have experienced that. No. And, I, you know, you can see how that happens, but it, it wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough the experience that you had. We're jumping around a bit, but we talked about seclusion earlier. I want to come back to it because okay. in May 2021, the department published its interim guidance, its interim guidelines on the use of restraint and seclusion. Those guidelines stated that children should never be locked in a room or left unaccompanied and must be able to leave when they want to. To me, that's very clear. Tis. The review affirms this position. It explains, quote, enforced seclusion specifically to control behaviour must never be used in educational settings in Northern Ireland, end quote. Mm -hmm. It also makes the same proclamation in relation to mechanical restraint. But what's not clear is what is the situation at the moment. We're waiting on the statutory guidance to put that into effect. Mm -hmm. But when you have such a clear statement from the department mm -hmm. in the interim guidelines and then in the review 
Does that not kind of almost become custom and practice from this point on? You would hope. So that's probably the best you could hope for because those, whilst those statements uh, last year were very, very welcome, they weren't within a framework uh, that that we could make it mandatory. But you would hope that the word is now very clear because genuinely, genuinely, I I do believe schools want to do the best for the children. And if, if the, word, the word hopefully has now got out that seclusion or isolation rooms or whatever they, they, they want to call them, whatever nice word you want to put around it, and we should never put nice words around this sort of thing, um, is no longer on the table. It's no longer in the toolkit. So, yes, so that is the one benefit of, of, of um, the re- issuing um the review of the guidance last year is that that it's been made clear to schools that seclusion and isolation should never be used for these areas but we need it in in the guidance so we can monitor it more effectively you would hope that the statement being made would be enough you would hope that a a legal enforcement isn't required you know when when always always you absolutely would hope you wouldn't need to to do the measures we've just talked about whether you know it brings social workers in and and in the first instance this is about supporting schools to be better to do things differently and and that's exactly what you would hope would happen we never want to get into the making a complaint a child protection complaint or or boards of governors getting involved in disciplining staff or, or, or schools having really bad inspections because this is not what we want what we want is that that this never happens again to a child but that said if we bring in statutory guidance in northern ireland that will take us beyond the situation in gb and where the guidance issued by the westminster and scottish governments is non-statutory isn't that right we would be forging ahead in that regard brilliant uh, yeah, from that point of view, um, I often I feel for the children in Northern Ireland we, we, that we, um, this is an analogy I use a lot, that we are at the sweetie shop when children in other jurisdictions, Scotland in particular, are in there getting their probably a 50p mix-ups now. Um, and and I, I'm, my heart is often broken when I see what's going on in other jurisdictions and, and, and we're not getting and we deserve just as much as they do. In this case, our government, is slightly ahead of the game with the other governments across the water, which I'm delighted about. But the game will only end when the goal of statutory guidance, mandatory guidance, and relevant legislative changes are made. But we've definitely, we've definitely pulled ahead of them, which is great because we so rarely, we're so rarely able to say that. Thank you, Kula. Deidre, thanks so much for joining us. Carolyn, thanks for being here. It's been really, really helpful to talk about this. I'd love to have you back, actually, when the guidelines are actually put in place. It'll be useful, perhaps when they've been in place for a little while and they can be reported on. Kula, if you're still about... I won't be. Won't be. Uh, highly oh. unlikely. Um, I, I, this is this is going to be this is going to be uh, years. It, certainly several months, and I finish in eleven months' time. I, and you'd be far too professional then to make a commitment to, to that binds the hands of your. Oh uh, no no oh, no! I would. I'd be very surprised if my successor didn't continue. Yes. Didn't continue this because it's an incredible. And also, my successor will not be allowed not to continue Absolutely. this by the parents. They're not going to let up now. <laughs> where that the end is so close. So. So no, no, um, but I definitely will be cheering on and making comment from the sidelines. Thank you, Killer. Didri, do you want to take the last word? Um, I just want to thank everybody for um, having me along today and um, covering such a really important topic, which is very close to home. And um, I just hope for the future that we can make this happen so that no other child e- ever faces restraint or seclusion for disciplinary purposes. Thanks, Adrian.